0: Hello, and welcome to Marginally Significant. My name is Andrew Smith, and I'm here with Andrew Monroe. Hello. Chris Holden. Hey. And Twila Wingrove. Hello. So I guess we have a few different topics planned for today. But before we get into that, I wanted to, I don't know, ask you guys, see how your classes have been going. So you, we've been t- um, teaching, we just decided we've been teaching online classes for five weeks now, even though it feels like 47. Um, and I want to know, how has it been going? Have you are you now an online you know, instructor convert? You're just like, yep, all of my classes is going to be online from now on. You've grown to be okay with it. You hate it. Where do you guys stand?
1: I don't know if I'm a convert, but I've gotten to the point of feeling like it's relatively normal. Mm-hmm. I mean, that oscillates from day to day, but it feels not as comfortable, but similarly comfortable as it would if I were in person. I still feel like it's more draining, though, because on Zoom it's like all of the energy that you have to put into interpersonal interaction, but without any of the return on investment. I know other people have said that, but that's that's how it usually feels.
0: Are you so you are still doing most stuff um, synchronously, right? So, like you are talking yeah. about when you are okay.
1: Yeah, everything's synchronous. Okay, and I am still up in the air as to whether moving forward since we are going to be online in the summer, if I'm going to do synchronous or asynchronous or a mix. Um, But the big push this semester is that most of my classes are really hands-on with like the lab class and quant. So it just makes more sense to be there in person.
0: Yeah. I haven't really, well, I don't know. I I guess I agree with you in the sense that I've gotten more used to the online teaching, but I would, I would also agree. I, I don't, I'm not like a convert. I'm moving forward. It's not like I would, you know, pick, you know, choose to, to teach online, you know, in the future, we're are going to be teaching online for the summer, but yeah, I, I'd still, I don't, I, I don't know. It's just like, I don't get a lot out of it. I don't enjoy it. I don't, there's not the interaction. I'm doing most of my stuff um, asynchronously. So obviously that plays a part, but still it's been, yeah, it's been a challenge. Um, it is definitely getting easier. And, you know, so maybe that's a positive. So maybe over time, it'll get easier. But it's definitely challenging. I like the interaction. I was mentioning this earlier, but I've been having my wife join me on um, the lecture videos. And I've definitely appreciated that because then, you know, we can talk and she can ask questions, I can ask questions of her and see what she would think about and do about different things. And she brings different examples and so on. And so having that's been really nice, because then there's actually some form of interaction and interactivity whereas normally recording is just so you know obviously asynchronous is just one way and i just uh, that's just a struggle for me
2: yeah Yeah, i'm
1: sure that oh go ahead
2: oh no no i was gonna say uh no go go ahead
1: oh i was just gonna say that i'm sure that brings a different perspective on the material too because she's coming from outside of psychology
0: yeah and i don't really tell her anything that we're going to be talking about either there you go um beforehand which is interesting um but i kind of do that intentionally, uh, that sounds funny, because I want her to be like the students in my class. So yeah. apparently they know nothing about what I'm gonna be talking about <laughs> either. But uh, but you know, that sort of thing, because I agree, I, I, it's nice that she kind of has this unrehearsed you know, mm. uh, perspective, and, and yeah, non-psychology perspective. And yeah, so it's been good.
2: Yeah, I, I feel like at best, my, my synchronous classes are not significantly worse, than they were when we were meeting in person but it's sort of the the sort of best case scenario is that teaching online is not any worse than it was than just like normal teaching but the asynchronous classes like my lecture classes are just terrible um i, I don't know I, not not because like the students are bad or anything like that i just i really hate recording lectures it's given me a whole new appreciation for like people who make a living on youtube just like talking into the void uh because like it turns out like that's a skill uh because i would i think if you gave me a choice between being beaten with boards by like a moderately sized gang of children for a half an hour or recording a lecture, I would take the beating by the children. Like I I really, I would rather have that happen um, than than record these lectures. They're just, they're so bloody boring. They're they're absolutely terrible. Um, And I mean, I hope that I'm not super boring, but I worry that like my lack of enthusiasm is like bleeding into the lecture. (laughs) I'm like, all right guys. I don't wanna be here. You don't wanna be here. Let's just like get through this together.
0: What? How have you guys done with, um? or how is like attendance been going? Not like it, that you're taking attendance, but like with the synchronous classes, are you getting most people actually showing up? And then with the asynchronous, have you looked to see how many people are actually watching the videos? Yes. Um, so I'm curious, like Chris, you have more
2: synchronous classes than I do. My My synchronous class, attendance is basically what it was during the semester, maybe even a little bit better. Uh, though I've I've had students who are attending class from their beds, um, mm-hmm. wrapped up in a blanket. I'm like, I, I think you may have literally just woken up, yeah. opened your laptop and then like you're in class. I mean, and hey, I'm glad to have you in class, glad to have you participating. But I mean, I'm glad you feel comfortable with us as, as a group to, to join us in this state
1: yeah I'd say the same thing about my synchronous classes almost all the way down I've had people in bed and stuff like that um, the attendance there is strong um, one thing I've noticed and I feel like a like an old man by bringing this up but I've noticed students drinking in class um nice. and like it it'll be on video and they'll like kind of show it to each other like hey look at me I'm, I'm drinking and like you know I get that like maybe maybe you need a beer before you go to stats because stats isn't your thing but like come on man it's not <laughs> we're not at the bar having class here that's so that's, that's my only gripe so
0: yeah it's not like we're podcasting
1: then drinking <laughs> yeah. okay but yeah, yeah. Uh, at least
3: yeah. have the decency to pour it into like a yeah like a really <laughs> brown
1: bag it i mean come yeah, on. Exactly.
2: <laughs> pour it into your coffee mug i mean yeah guys that pretty easily uh yeah. Yeah, but for asynchronous stuff, I, uh, Smith, like your question, like how many people watch the videos? I was just looking at, like, so how many people watched my lecture videos that I posted last week? And so, out of, let, let, let's, let's test your answer, out of 70 people in, in two classes, what would you guess? How many people watched the lectures that I posted last week, uh, a full week ago?
1: Seven.
0: So yeah, so I, I'll, I, I'll give a guess, but I also have a reason why it might be okay that it's super low, so I'll say 25.
2: Okay. Um, you're way over, Smith. Uh, okay. <laughs> so it's 12.
3: Oh 12 wow, okay. People, <laughs> um,
2: watched all uh, the, the videos that, that I posted last week, so yeah: yeah. Um,
0: So not mine has been, yeah, mine has been better than that, so I've usually been getting about um, than I do. Oh, what was that?
2: You must make better videos than I do. (laughs) Yeah, you know. Um, (laughs) But no, I've
0: been, yeah, it's it's Vanessa. She's the bull. I've been getting, I would say about half of the people are watching it, but that's like, uh, I would say a week or so after I post them, then you get like right before the exam. So we've only had one exam, but right before the exam, then there was a huge uptick and then it got up. I don't know if it was like, you know, as many as the entire, all the students, but there was a big uptick there. So I think a lot of the students, at least with the asynchronous stuff, they're not necessarily watching them on a regularly scheduled basis, but they are watching them before the um, the exams.
2: Yeah, and that that's fair. Like the um, the last lecture that I recorded prior to the the previous exam, out of seventy people, sixty two watched it. So you know, pretty much everyone watches them eventually. But uh, yeah, they're they're it. I would imagine that if you looked at the distribution, it, it really peaks right before or maybe even during the exam.
3: Yeah. So I have a question. So I haven't weighed in because I am not teaching that much this semester. So my practices haven't changed <laughs> that much. I basically gave everyone, I think I mentioned this in our last episode, I gave my class the opportunity to take the grades they had and all but one student did that. So. It's converted into mentoring rather than lecturing, which is fine by me. Mm -hmm. Um, But my question is, are there practices in your work, either teaching or other work that you think have been helpful that you would sort of continue even when Mm. we go back to normal life?
1: Mm. Mm. I have answers for that question in general, like assuming we stay online, but not when we go back to normal life.
0: Yeah, I've thought about ways like of improving online stuff. So like a lot of the activities, I just kind of tried to take what I would normally do in a face-to-face class and just like throw it online and it's fine. And obviously that does not (laughs) work very well. So there have been a lot of things like that, that over the summer with teaching summer classes or depending on what happens in the fall, uh, where things have been. Where I have ideas there i'm trying to think have i have there been any things that i've decided that even if we go back face to face, that I would keep doing? Um, yeah, nothing's really coming to mind
2: yeah, I tend to agree I mean one thing that i've i i don't know if I've learned this or not, um but I was initially optimistic, and then i i may I may have been wrong. But like Zoom office hours seemed to be something that was quite positive, um, that it seemed to lower the barrier of entry uh, or barrier for entry to for students. And so I had a lot more people sort of willing to like pop in for a 15 minute Zoom meeting to talk about how they went wrong on the last assignment than I've ever had in a semester come into my office. And so that's something that I've been thinking a little bit more about, about whether or not I will hold office hours or I'll have like dedicated Zoom office hours um, or, or something along those lines to make it a little bit more comfortable for, for people to just like, hey, I'm gonna pop in for like 10 minutes, ask a question, then pop right out. Um, and then the other thing was, I've been doing a lot more sort of regular emailing like every week my my students get a like here's kind of like your weekly update email about the class and if i i don't know if it does any good for them but i do feel it sort of keeps them apprised to everything that's going on but i don't know if that that would be useful when we're back in person because then like you know you see me at least two days a week and like we check in. so but the zoom office hours uh is maybe something that's that's useful
0: yeah that's a good point. I did a Zoom review session for before one of the exams and the students seemed to really like that. I mean it was, you know, they were it was easy for them just to chat to type in um questions that then I could, you know, answer. A couple of people asked questions kind of through the video through talking, but most people just type their their questions in and I did get the sense that a lot of people you know, ask questions who who maybe wouldn't have normally felt comfortable speaking up. It, this was the big um, social site class that I have. So there's like 160 people. So, so I feel like people felt um, more comfortable. So that would be an interesting thing to con- think about continuing, uh, doing it in that format.
3: Yeah, I was just thinking for my stats consulting stuff, having Zoom consultations has been easy and fruitful, um, and on campus, I work with people all over campus and uh, in you know, the offices that we have that are off campus, and so just finding a meeting time was often difficult, and so I think this could be a really beneficial alternative that I, I mean, I always had that alternative, but I sort of balked at it, uh, and now it seems much more feasible, to do and more efficient in some ways
0: yeah and you can just be more confident that anybody that you would need to meet with would know how to use zoom and be able to access it and everything whereas before you know half of us had hardly even used it so
1: yeah are you sharing your screen and stuff as you go through the analysis so they kind of see the working parts
3: yeah i'm Uh, sharing my screen and sometimes so the meeting i had earlier today they shared their screen uh, the see it to sort of ask if they were interpreting things correctly and and we're doing a lot more by email as well Mm -hmm. and that's it's I know some people don't like that for me it's can be convenient because Sometimes when I'm having a consultation meeting, people want me to answer questions that I need time to look up and answer or or just process. And so um, the email back and forth has been helpful. Uh, And I don't know if faculty will be willing to do that once we're back in session because they didn't really prefer that in the past. Um, But from my perspective, it's been helpful because it just buys me a little time to actually think about what I'm telling them.
1: Yeah.
3: sure I am not being hasty in my advice.
1: Yeah, that sounds great.
0: So unrelated to teaching, but still related to the changes and whatnot, um, you know, how are things going like personal life in terms of, you know, the fact that we can't see each other or hang out or, you know doing anything because before we had talked about a little bit about um you know how often we're going out and you know we were kind of joking about you know supporting the local economy by getting takeout Mm -hmm. and i would say in my family we are still definitely doing that (laughs) um so we you know again not like a ridiculous amount but still definitely doing that um but yeah there are other things that it's been like you're surprised at how hard it is or you've adjusted to or you're like actually i never really wanted to see you guys anyway so this is easy
2: i mean I missed two of my three co-hosts.
1: <laughs> we'll leave it up to the, the <laughs> listeners to figure out who. Uh. Uh,
2: I mean, so there, there's been a mix. On, on the one hand, um, I feel like I have connected with some people that I've sort of fallen out of touch with because I have sort of more time on my hands and everything is now like either e- via email or via mm-hmm. Zoom. And so I've, I've been... Zooming with people that mean a lot to me, but I, I've done like a really poor job keeping up with. So that, that's that been nice. Um, also, I'm probably healthier than I've been uh, because like, so for me, like this is just like me personally, I have a commute. And that that means that oftentimes like the first thing to go out the door is any type of exercise. Whereas now I'm, I'm exercising like probably three to five days in a given week. Um, But I think this is all like my way of like staying sane. So I think the thing that sort of underlies all of that is my anxiety level is just always super high. Mm -hmm. And um, it means that I do not, I don't handle stress in the most adaptive of ways. I'm more likely, like I had a meeting with a student today and the student made a point that was pretty misguided uh, is the best way that, that I can put it. And I didn't snap at the student so much as I just said, like, no, that's wrong. Uh, and like my tolerance for just silliness or my to- is, is just like zero. Like my tolerance for things that I don't like is nearly zero.
3: I am in the same boat. I have limited patience these days. Like I don't need nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need any nonsense. <laughs> and so I'm easily frustrated, I guess, um, which is, I'm sure, related to anxiety. Um, and one thing I've learned about myself is, like, I, I sincerely thought I was the kind of person who could never be bored, Mm. because I'm an introvert. I like reading. I like doing, I like the simple pleasures. (laughs) and So I really thought I could never be bored, but it turns out even I have like a limit to how much I can sit and stare at a wall (laughs) and I have passed that limit. And so that's been an interesting sort of observation. Um, And there are weeks or there are days where I'm fine. I do my yoga, I read my book and whatever and I can handle it. But then there are other days where I sort of feel like I'm losing my mind a little.
1: Yeah. Some people say boredom leads to new hobbies and new insights, but we'll see. I've been feeling a little bored myself as well. Like in those, like in those downtimes it comes on.
3: Yeah. And I do feel like in some ways it has led to new insights. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like I'm observing myself in different yeah. ways. And so that's interesting. Uh, but I could also stand to hang out with some people every once in a while. Yeah. I,
0: yeah. I would definitely say the boredom has led to new um, hobbies. Uh, well, not new, rekindling of an old hobby. Uh, Jonah and I are definitely playing a lot more video games now mm-hmm. than we used to. Um, yeah. Basically just, you know, cause we're, around each other all the time, so.
3: Yeah.
2: I feel like my video game playing has definitely spiked. Mm. Uh, There's a lot more video game playing happening. Um, But I, I, like for me, um, the lack of, not the lack of busy, well, so the combination of sort of a lack of structure and a lack Mm -hmm. of busyness has made, I've really gotta be disciplined about sitting down and, and making myself do work as opposed to like sitting down like, well, If I don't do any more work today, nothing bad will happen. I could probably just spend the next 12 hours like killing orcs on the thing. And so I I haven't started searching for it yet, but I want to see if there. I'm sure that this app exists, but basically like an app that allows you to say like, okay, this program like lock the door and throw mm-hmm. away the key. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that I can do like not rebooting my system, not doing anything, but for like six months, this this program like simply will not work on your computer. And six I
3: months. I was thinking like two hours.
1: No, <laughs>
2: yeah. No, I need I need like. To go cold turkey on this, mm. I feel like I feel like they like I I am playing too many video games and they're just like this constant draw
1: mm-hmm. and
2: and so I'm like okay I need to like kill this entirely for, for like two months and I need to kill it in a way that like there's nothing that I can do to like get the passcode to like mm-hmm. open this program
3: again. I don't. I- I don't know. I This probably isn't the healthiest reaction because it's basically gluttony. <laughs> but I just sort of feel like now's the time. I mean, of course, we have to get our work done. Don't get me yeah. wrong. But, like, if there's any excuse to just do what you like mm. doing, I feel mm. like a pandemic is a good one. And so, like, yeah. I'm not going to block my whatever <laughs> if it's, like, helping me survive, mm. like, complete isolation
2: and and that's why I haven't done it yet because I, I genuinely enjoy it. it it makes me happy but then I feel like I have like the, the academic guilt that we often have that I'll go and I'll play this game and then I'll come back for, from it and then I'm like I just burned four hours that like I should have been working and then I'll feel guilty about that and I'll be angry about the fact that like I should have been working where so like maybe maybe what I actually need to do is just like hey, man, it's cool if you don't sit down and, like, work on a paper for four hours every day. Like, that's okay. You can, like, you can be okay with that.
3: I give you permission to be okay with that. Like, you need an app to shut down your academic guilt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not an app to block your video game.
2: That's yeah. probably yeah, Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, if you find one of those apps to block my academic guilt, like, that'd be great. I yeah. could
3: make some good money if I, I could develop that app.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. I would agree. Yeah. Working. Yeah. Don't feel guilty about not working four hours on a manuscript every day or anything like that. Yeah. I'm,
2: I haven't invented calculus or anything like that. So.
1: <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Well, going back to the, the root of your question, like going out and stuff like that, um, our only trips are to the grocery store and usually it's one of us because there's restrictions um so that's that's been our big highlight i I don't know if you saw we got hannah came in and interrupted us but we also get really excited when we get new packages so we just got a new package of food Um, so that's been kind of a big thing um and yeah i've been struggling with like working and not working and and playing too many video games as well Um, but i've just let myself do it Um, i think that's kind of my coping mechanism in some ways for all the other things that have been disrupted. So like all the social events, um, I had to cancel my big annual fishing trip, which was also doubling as my bachelor party. Um, so that's, um, that's a big bummer. And our wedding, even though it's in October, it's still up in the air. So Mm. that's been another big drawback. Uh, we've been talking a lot about that and it's kind of tough to, come to that realization that it might not happen but we've we've thought about some cool ways to make it kind of unique and fun still mm-hmm. um so but yeah so i mean that's that's been the biggest thing i would say otherwise it's we've i've at least fallen into a, a somewhat of a routine it's right. not a perfect one but it, it it's a semi-routine i guess you
0: were, you mentioned uh, oh sorry go ahead Tyler.
3: I was just going to agree. I feel like I've fallen into a routine too. Um, I have my hobbies and my work and I only, yeah, I just go to the grocery store. Although I do go to Starbucks on occasion. Uh I'll admit that. Um, And then I have enormous guilt if I don't have a mask. Uh And so I have to work through my guilt complex and so I finally broke down and ordered a mask because I was using a okay. scarf, but then half the time I'd forget the scarf and then I'd feel bad and mm-hmm. it's a whole thing. And so I finally broke down and ordered a mask. <laughs> and then I realized I ordered it from Australia. <laughs> I ordered it on Etsy and I didn't pay attention. So it'll be here in like 2022. <laughs> look forward to the arrival of my mask
2: uh, you'll, be, you'll be all set for the next pandemic
3: <laughs> but yeah like round three I'm yeah. to go. Hmm. Yeah.
0: i was actually gonna ask that yeah so do you guys wear masks when you go to grocery store
2: i just realized i nodded uh a, <laughs> yeah a, i was well, too well in, in an audio format Um uh, yeah so i I go out super rarely. So because my wife works at a grocery store, mm-hmm. one thing that's really cool that they've done is that once the store closes, all of the uh, employees get to shop then. So she's been doing all of our, our grocery shopping. And so I, I don't leave the house for, for basically anything. Um, but recently, uh, we had to make a couple of trips out. Um, And so anytime we're going in, like, a public space uh, or we have to, like, go to the store, we wear masks. I don't wear a mask when I'm out running and I don't wear a mask when I'm out cycling uh, because you don't need to. It it seems like the the research shows that, like, you really don't spread anything then. Um, Really?
3: I saw... That's not what I saw. I saw a study about running that was, like... There's a
2: really good Vox explainer on it. (laughs) I'm just going to, like... uh, We'll put it in the show notes, but, like, there's a really, <laughs> yeah. really good box explainer that... I didn't pay uh, attention
3: because I don't run or cycle,
2: so... You are extremely unlikely to get uh, coronavirus from anyone who's running or cycling, even if they're running or cycling in, like, relative proximity to you. Um, on top of that, it's really bad for you to exercise with a mask on because it makes it more difficult to breathe. Uh, yeah, so no, uh, if you're, if you're exercising, it seems that masks may be more harmful than they're helpful. But, uh, so
1: yeah. Yeah. Some people actually restrict their oxygen flow by wearing masks when they train. Um, I think that's ridiculous and crazy and I'd never want to do that to myself, yeah, no, but um, none
2: not in that kind of shape.
1: Yeah, no, nor am I. And I, I have a, a similar approach I wear. It's actually, it's made for fishing. It's like a, a buff. That's like you know you wear around your neck and you can make like a balaclava out of it or anything and i just double that over and wear that funnily enough i've actually gotten like three compliments from workers in the grocery store about how cool my mask is and i'm like all right that's that's good reinforcement to keep wearing it and um it it meets the cdc standard so mm-hmm. it works but yeah i'm not wearing it when i'm on the bike yeah, I haven't
0: you know, when I've gone to the grocery store I haven't been wearing a mask, but now in terms of like the number of other people who are, it's kind of reached the tipping point where most other people are, so now I feel weird not wearing one, so I did get one now and so moving forward I haven't gone to the grocery store in a few days, but moving forward I'm going to I'm going to wear a mask, but But definitely there was a time where I wasn't, but it was funny to feel the kind of social pressure of, you know, oh, wow, now most people I know. It's almost like the stuff that we study matters. (laughs) There's a good transition. (laughs) Good
2: segue. I do think you're right. The tipping
3: point is here. Like, I went to the grocery store today, and I didn't have my scarf. And I found myself getting annoyed at other people who weren't wearing a mask. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) And then realizing that I was one of those people. And so I think the norm is definitely shifting.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it holds over the next, I don't know, weeks and months. Yeah. So, uh, Monroe, is your research important? Uh,
2: It's so important.
3: I think we should answer on his behalf.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can see if we have sort of inter-rater reliability here. <laughs> I, should,
0: I think I think the three of us would be very very high agreement. So uh, you
1: would probably have a different perspective. <laughs> should we blame him for doing the research that he does? <laughs>
0: that's true.
2: I mean, That's also probably true. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, this was I forget. Do you remember who it was on on Twitter? Who yeah, Will
0: this? Will Gervais. Oh. Uh-huh. That's right.
2: Yeah, so posted, like, a polling question of, like, is your work important? And I think there are, like, three or four options.
0: So, yeah, it's basically – so there are a bunch of different questions, but one of them could be – or was basically, you know, as objectively as possible, how important is your research? Is it, like, super important, pretty important, of middling important, or not very important? Yeah,
2: so – and and the – the modal response was like of middling importance, if I remember the the results. So, uh, and and then that that sort of blossomed into this like, okay, well, if everybody's doing work that like they themselves recognize as not being very important mm-hmm. on the broad spectrum of things, like why why in the heck are we doing it?
0: But. Yeah. Yeah, because there was like a third of people of people who said something, you know, who, who responded with, it's not very important. And then there were replies to that of like, well, maybe those people should start doing different research.
2: Yeah. So I, I had sort of, I, I thought it was a cool poll to put out there. So like, I, not, nothing against Will on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, and I responded to it. I'm like, yep, of middling importance was was my response. But I think there's sort of two problems with like reading into those data at all, or like dunking on people who think that their work is of middling importance. And one is sort of given the moment that we're living. in, so like one thing that I have felt as like, we are in a global pandemic and 50,000 people have died in the U S and what, like over 3 million are infected across the world. And like I study the the basics of moral cognition and like when you put those, those things like side by side, I'm like, well, all right. My work seems kind of small when I think about like understanding how humans make moral judgments um, against like people dying all the time. And so, yeah, I mean, in this moment, if you're asking me like right now, like how important does your work feel? I'm like, well, I don't feel like my work feels all that important in the grand scheme of things because I'm not saving lives. And that's kind of the salient thing right now. So one one problem I kind of I have with this question is I don't I think that there's a big framing effect. When you're asking like how important does does your work feel, I think people are sort of answering that in reference to the current moment we're living in. And the other is like in is my work important like relative to what? Uh I, I mean I don't think I can be objective in that like do I think my work is more important than I don't know uh, people who study like the forestry habits of Christmas trees. Like, yeah, probably because I don't care about Christmas trees, but I imagine people who care a whole lot about Christmas trees don't care a whole lot about moral cognition. I don't know.
1: Yeah. And I, I would add to that, that I think another problem is, it's hard to say is any one study or is any one researchers line of research important to me? It's more, does the field as a whole contribute to something? And can we, you know, look at these studies that amass or, or seem to kind of converge on an idea? And is that idea itself important, right? So I, when I hear that question, I think it's kind of framed in terms of, is that one study or am I important as a researcher? And I think that's a bit misguided.
3: Yeah, yeah mean, Oh, go my, ahead, Sorry. Sorry, that was my reaction. Part of my reaction too was that, I, yeah, I never think any study is important on its own, and so if that's how I, if that's what I'm evaluating in the moment, then the answer will always be no. Like, I don't think Mm the study is important, but I think it could be important in the broader context of multiple studies on a topic that could be relevant to human behavior, Um, and so part of my reaction is completely in line with what you said, Chris, but then there's another part of my reaction that, is this this sense that I mean a lot of what academics do is I mean we were drawn to this area because we're or to any area because we're just sort of naturally curious about it and so all of our research is just sort of in some way (laughs) self-interested like self-directed behavior right like we just are curious and so or a lot of us at least are curious and so we want to know if X relates to Y and if M mediates that relationship. And so in that sense, like none of it is that important for the world. Like we're all just sort of, I don't want to be completely pessimistic, but we're all just kind of fish swimming around doing what we want to do and not really caring about broader um, movements. And so to the extent that our field is still defined by people in silos doing their own little thing, and then once they do their own little thing saying, oh, but yeah, but it connects to this other thing and sort of post-hoc making it important, yeah. then, uh, then that I think is, I don't know, a concern that I have or, or a complaint that I have about yeah. field.
0: Yeah, I, so I mean, I was trying to, you know, because the biggest issue with this question is, well, how do you define importance, right? So I was trying to think about, well, how do I define importance? And I mean, it's hard, but I was just trying to figure out like, okay, well, it, you know, it makes a difference in my life maybe is what you could say. Does it make a difference? And I have a tough time figuring out with like, like 95% of what we do, if it actually makes any difference in my day-to-day life. Like if that finding, that result, that whole researcher's line of research didn't exist, would my life be any different? I mean, maybe there are some things that I might think about a little bit differently. I mean, so the way I process information, the way I understand stuff, but in terms of my actual day-to-day life, I don't know that anything would actually be different. So I actually responded that my research is not important because I don't think it matters. It doesn't change the way anybody you know, goes about their day-to-day life. And obviously we can, we can talk about, um, you know, some of the people said like, well, but with basic research, you never know what the thing, you know, this could be the thing. And so sure, fine there, you know, one of my studies might become just a, you know, a classic someday. It's not going to, but you know what I mean? So, so there's always that argument to be made, but I, I don't think my research or, the way I read it, 95% of the people whose research that it's being done is really all that important. It's not affecting our lives very much. Now, just to preview what I want to talk about later, um, I don't think that means we should change what we're doing. I'm perfectly happy doing what I'm doing, but I don't think it's all that important.
2: Yeah, I mean, and I, one thing I struggled with was, uh, similar to what you just said, Smith, is sort of in general, like, I struggle often when I think about, like, the field and thinking about okay well when was the when was the last time i read a paper and i'm like wow this is a really big deal Mm -hmm. um and and i will say like it it probably happens it happens with a non-zero frequency i think i've read like three papers this year that i've gone like oh that's that's like a really big deal that that's um something that that matters and smith is wagging his head no um but i like the hit rate of papers that i read that i go this is some trivial level bullshit uh and and i both mean like it is trivial and the research might be bullshit <laughs> uh and, and and like that is far more common than me going like oh that's that's a really interesting insightful and impactful study and it makes me go like more generally like what are we doing in psychology
0: yeah. uh,
2: but but then like then the question is like all right well shouldn't we go and like do something else then?
0: But see so I think this goes back to what Twila was saying earlier that like I think we're people kind of are I don't know, confounding two things right there's importance and there's also kind of interest and I've read a lot of really interesting papers and papers that I think are very fascinating um, I think some of the research at least for myself I find my own research really interesting I like the process of this, I, I think that it's really interesting to figure these things out. I think that the specific things I'm looking at as well as social psychology more broadly is very interesting. And you know, when you know we get things wrong or we get things right and all of these different things I think are really fascinating and interesting. And so if that's the question, then I say, yes, it's very interesting, or at least I find my stuff to be very interesting, but we all have our own interests, of course, which is, which is why we have the diversity, which is great. But I don't know that it's all that important. So because I find it interesting, I have no desire to do other things. I don't know that we need to. I, I think that people who are saying that their research is really, at least within psychology, that their research is really important, I would say most of them are probably deluding themselves. Maybe there are some that I'm unaware of that really is super important and is going to change people's lives. But my guess is is that most of it doesn't but it could still be very interesting
2: yeah i don't know this is something so it's it's hard for me to separate like out my general skepticism from my covid uh (laughs) pessimism that i feel like i'm I'm extra pessimistic now Mm -hmm. um maybe because i've been trapped inside the house too long uh but like when i think about okay andrew you're going to die someday Mm -hmm. and when you're dead all that will be left of you will be, you know, your, your dusty references. That Like maybe someday some undergrad or like some grad student might dig up and like throw into a thesis to like fill some space. And when I like think about my work in that context, I'm like, well, okay. So if that's, if that's all like it amounts to like a, a citation that someone might trot out someday, but not really fully understand, then holy crap, like I should go and do something else because I'm going to die. And that's, that's like no legacy at all.
0: But I would say you are doing something else. You are teaching, you are mentoring, you are you know, creating relationships. I would say that, and so this is the other thing. I think it's a kind of ridiculous statement to even say, well, if you're not doing something important, you should get a different job. Yeah. I mean, I would say 60% of the jobs out there aren't very important. I mean, so many people are doing things that if that job did not exist, I mean, you know, you can think about just a lot of different fields, a lot of different areas where, you know, I mean, like right now is a good time to actually test that, right? Because so many things are shut down. How many of these things are we able to live without? And, but people have plenty of jobs that are not important, but they could be interesting or they could be, you know, fun for them or they think it's a, you know, interesting cause or whatever it is. So I think that's a perfectly fine thing to do, and they're in the same boat where they're not going to necessarily have a body of, you know, research that you know, hundred years down the road, somebody is going to point to their, I don't know, whatever it is. They're just creating, you know, relationships and doing different things, and that's going to be their legacy.
2: Yeah, and I and I agree that um, when I think about sort of what lends my work the most meaning, I think most in terms of mentoring my students and, and teaching oftentimes like the, the research is what I find intellectually the most stimulating, but it's also what I wrestle with most mm-hmm. because I I think like as Twyla said, like this is something that like I find personally enjoyable because it's sort of satisfying my, my own curiosities about the world, but there's, there's something really selfish about that if it's not doing anything bigger than just like satisfying my own curiosity. So I, I, I struggle even like non coronavirus times with like my work has to mean something more than it just satisfies my desire to like scratch an itch.
3: And I think you hit the nail on the head, Andrew. I think it's the question is do we so which Andrew?
2: (laughs) Obviously, Monroe.
3: (laughs) I'm not going to (laughs) clarify. The, que- like the, the reality is that all of us are really privileged to have these jobs that I think are stable, <laughs> fingers crossed, uh, <laughs> that give us freedom to pursue the research that we're interested in. And the question is sort of, are you satisfied with that? Like, are you satisfied just pursuing your interests and um, answering the questions that that you're passionate about, or is that not enough for you? And we live, we work in a setting where we can pick and choose, right? Like Andrew Monroe, if you really were dissatisfied and decided that you wanted to solve a world problem, then you could alter your research <laughs> to move in that direction uh it might be giving you too much power but
2: the tenure permanent tenure i can go and do whatever i want is what i heard
3: Right. Well, I mean, sort of. And so I don't know, like part of it might just be a value difference. Like some people are perfectly satisfied to work in academia, answering questions that are interesting to them and are interesting to others or else they wouldn't be getting published and getting read, even if it's for people. So, I mean, there's a machine that's sort of, I don't know, reinforcing our self-interest And so if you're satisfied with that, do you have to change? Um, And part of me comes back to this idea, and I think Monroe said this in the beginning, like if this weren't an international health crisis, then a lot of us wouldn't be having this conversation. And so I guess the question is, do we have this new perspective? Are we enlightened now and feel like we need to change direction? Or are we just going to get over the hump and go back to work as usual? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And to be clear, if people did have the desire to do important work and that was their goal and they wanted to, like you said, change the world and now maybe this pandemic inspired that or that was just kind of their goal, that, that would be fine. That would be great. Obviously, being the pessimist that I am, I would say like, yeah, their research isn't going to do that, but, um, you know, they could try to go for it if they want to. So I have no problem with that goal. I would just say that I don't think that that is a necessary requirement that all research is, you know, somehow going to, you know, change the world or do whatever.
2: Well, and at the same time, um, you know, again, as, as both you and Tyler pointed out, research isn't the only thing that we do. So even if your research doesn't, isn't going to like change the world, if your research provides opportunities for students to learn how to do research, it trains them, like that still has, that still has a lot of value just in and of itself. Because again, a lot of what we do at a comprehensive university, like a lot of what gives my life meaning is that I teach people a a way of of thinking that I get to interact with my students. Like That's one of the reasons why this coronavirus thing sucks so hard is that the, the thing that gives me the most enjoyment in life, my everyday interactions with my students, is gone right now. Um, and so, you know, even if our work isn't going to change the world, I think the fact that our work does change the world for some of our students really matters. And we might not see that and we might never know of it for, for tons of our students, but, but I think we do, I, I think it does have a really important impact there.
0: I agree. Uh, so, speaking about, um, you know, mentors and mentoring um so uh, baumeister roy baumeister wrote a paper <laughs> so how's that for a transition um as good as your earlier transition <laughs> oh that's true yeah i was trying to think of a way to transition into this um actually are we finished with the importance topic All right, getting thumbs up. So um, there's a paper that's been floating around for a while. So Roy Baumeister wrote a paper called um, Charting the Future of Social Psychology on Stormy Seas, Winners, Losers, and Recommendations. And the paper came out in 2016. And I heard about it. I read the um, abstract and then never got back to it. There was a bunch of people that actually talked about it on Twitter and whatnot. And I just never actually read it. And then uh, I went back and somebody referenced it. And so I looked at the abstract again and it mentioned something about how the, because of the changes that are going on in social psychology and, and psychology in general, there are going to be, you know, winners and losers. And some of the losers are going to be people at, you know, smaller universities or with, um, you know, who don't have large research budgets. And so I got interested in that because I'm always interested to find out ways that, you know, we, we are disadvantaged and how we're overcoming these tremendous disadvantages that we have. So I got interested in that, and so we uh, we passed that um, uh, that paper around, and so we've been um, kind of thinking about talking about this and covering some of this. I don't know. It's trying to think about how best to uh, to I don't know go about this because there's a lot that he covers, but the basic kind of premise here that he's starting with is that these kind of changes in psychology moving to you know, pre-registration, open science and so on, that a lot of these changes, um, while they might be good, maybe we're doing too much and maybe the, there's gonna be, like he, he said something about wanting a, um, just kind of, um, not a revolution, but just kind of revising some of these things. And so he's, you know, kind of making that, that argument um but he talks about how there could be kind of problems that come across with having you know this requirement of large sample sizes let's say um but i don't know what do you guys think did you have like general um kind of i don't know thoughts on it or should we just dive right into some of the specific points that he was making
1: i guess this is a general point i think it's it's one of the main premises of his argument Mm-hmm. Um, and I might be coming out of the gate swing in here, but here we go. Um, he, as you described, I think starts by talking about like the open science. He doesn't call it open science movement, but mm. the, the article starts out by describing all of these practices and all these changes in social psychology and how maybe we should be careful with some of these things. But the thing that he seems to kind of continuously drive at in the paper is as he put it, the fetishization of large sample sizes and talks about like mini lab product, or projects and like replication projects. And to me, that's that's one issue, but it doesn't explain or is not encompassed by or in the open science movement generally. So I think he's hanging a lot on this supposed idea that people are pushing for large sample sizes. And I think a lot of the ways that it trickles down or the ways that he outlines it trickling down uh, to small and like comprehensive universities and early career researchers hangs on this fact that supposedly we need to collect big sample sizes. So I think out, out of the gate, to me, it's a little bit misguided in that sense. Um, especially because it has that initial framing of like we're in this state of broad changes within the field. Hopefully that was congruent enough.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that. He does really seem to focus on this emphasis on large samples and the consequences that that might have, rather than a number of the other pushes in open science movement, I mean, just literally like open data and so on, or pre-registration. To give a little bit of fairness, he does talk a little bit about um, slow research, whether it's sure. needing to collect more data or doing it at a, you know, to a more rigorous level, or I mean, even things like pre registration, just even open data. I mean, all those things slow down research because it takes time. And so I think that some of those things you can kind of lump into there. Anything that's going to slow down science, that's going to make it harder, take longer, more steps is going to kind of draw out the process. But, but I do agree that he really seems to focus on this emphasis of large samples, which while that is an important push, there are obviously many other issues and kind of goals of this kind of scientific reform that we're going through.
3: And I don't think I mean for this to sound flippant. <laughs> Maybe I do. But my thinking is if the concern... For if the concern is for ECRs or and or people at smaller institutions, then the change that needs to be made if we agree that larger sample sizes are beneficial, um, then the change that needs to be made is to tenure requirements mm-hmm. and expectations for ECRs to get tenure, to get promoted. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that we make psychology or research in general less rigorous because they need to get tenure, but that we change the expectations for them so that the science can stay rigorous or become more rigorous Mm -hmm. um, and they can still have job security.
0: Yeah. I I think the concern might be that if we do have this emphasis on, you know, the um, larger samples or whatever it is, that it's going to kind of, create an incentive to use easy to collect data and easy to run studies so then people can be more competitive than their peers because you know if i can run you know a bunch of mturk studies and get some publications and do that really quickly and have huge sample sizes now i have the 6 and 8 and 12 and 24 publications Whereas somebody else is doing you know, harder to collect data, but maybe is actually better in some ways, they're not going to be able to get that, um, uh, get those pub- as many publications because it's going to take so long. And yes, I agree that we should, on you know, tenure um, committees and whatnot, we should definitely be focusing on the type of data they're collecting and the quality of the data. Not that there's something necessarily inherently wrong with online studies, but, but when people are doing these studies that really take a long time, kind of knowing that like, well, there's one reason why maybe they don't have as many publications is because they're running, you know, face-to-face, one-person-at-a-time studies that take a lot of time, and, and we should definitely incorporate that. But I think the concern is that that won't happen, that people will just look, ah, they got 10 publications, this other person only has four, Ten's better than four, let's get that person.
3: But is it a competition? I guess if you're going on the job market, is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And and I mean, even, in, um, you know, 10 years... Tenure is going to be a competition also because it's going to be relative. You're, you're going to be evaluated relative to how well everybody else is doing. Obviously, if there are some objective criteria, if people set up, well, you have to have, you know, if you get three publications or more, if you get 10 publications, you know, if there's some objective criteria, then it's not. But even then, you're going to be motivated to get those three or 10 or whatever it is in as quickly as you can. And so it still can have some perverse incentives.
2: So I, I think it might be useful to like back up and yeah. and like uh, talk a little bit about what Baumeister is claiming to sort of ground where we agree and disagree. So I, I agree with Chris. Um, the The paper is sort of framed in this like we're in the middle of this big revolution with open science and like... Hold your horses. Maybe we should like move for small changes rather than large changes. Mm-hmm. But the paper, or at least I took the paper, really to be about sample size. Yeah. The, the core argument uh, that that he returns to over and over and over again is is really about the pros and cons of getting larger samples. And so I I, I took a couple of sort of major points from from his argument. Uh, and maybe it's important to like, unpack these and then we can go through where we think he's, he's right or wrong. So the first argument that, that he makes here is that um, small samples are preferable to large samples because they allow us to be more creative. They allow us to, uh, so we can have more creative designs. We can explore more. And so we should sort of uh, explore small and uh, confirm big is, is what he says uh, in the paper. Uh, And he also goes on to say, you know, with large sample sizes, we're gonna focus on, we'll we'll be able to detect lots of small and trivial effects, so we'll have a more trivial science. Uh, We'll do fewer behavioral experiments, so we're gonna have a more artificial science. It will reduce the amount of work that we can do at any given time because uh, of of sort of limited resources. And as you all said, um, this is gonna disadvantage student training, early career researchers, and researchers at small colleges. And then, so those are the arguments, you know, that he has around sort of the large sample sizes. The other argument that he sort of is making that is related to this is that, you know, having large sample sizes isn't really gonna tell you all that much because, you know, if a lab experiment replicates or doesn't, that really doesn't tell you very much because lab, uh, lab experiments are really poor guides for true effect sizes because they're super artificial, which I found that to be really, an interesting argument that lab experiments so basically like if you can't confirm a lab experiment, it doesn't tell you anything. But if a lab experiment does show something, mm-hmm. then that does tell you something, which is an interesting uh treatment of logic. It's,
0: um, well, I mean there's there's some so so part of it it seemed at least my takeaways, part of it was um with null hypothesis testing that there there are differences. If you um if you reject sure. the null, that tells you something. If you fail to reject, that essentially tells you nothing. That does not tell you the null is true. Like, I mean, that's just a pillar of null hypothesis right. testing that, that if, you don't, if you fail to reject, that does not mean that the null is therefore true. So there, that was part of it. The other part of it in terms of kind of the replications um, was just the idea that a failed replication, it could fail for a bunch of reasons, sure. not just that the theory is wrong. And so he did kind of spell that out. So, so I agree his logic was a little bit interesting, but again, there was kernels of truth in there.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and this is maybe something we'll talk about in a future episode, but I do, uh, th- there's an interesting logic that we employ and some of it is the result of null hypothesis testing that like, if you show an effect with a super small, highly variable sample, mm-hmm. then we know something is true. But if you fail to show an effect with a really yes. large, robust sample, then we don't know anything at all. Uh, is is one sort of argument that he's making here, and I think it's made uh, by, by people more generally. But fundamentally, his argument is that large samples are this, as Chris put it, this, fetish, that this emphasis on large sample sizes is going to cause more problems than it's yes. worth. Uh, and I, I think that that maybe is a good spot to start with our discussion
0: well and one of the first things that he mentioned was that with running with having large sample sizes it essentially allows you to detect small effect sizes mm-hmm. and that that's going to be problematic because now small effect sizes are significant um and so therefore people are going to you know have like you said a field of, of small effect sizes one of the issues I have with that argument, though, is that it's conflating importance with effect size, and they are not the same. And I teach my undergrad, you know, intro you know, research method students that effect size and importance are not the same. There are a lot of really small effects that we actually care a lot about. If these things are changing, you know, likelihood of death, then yeah, even a small effect, a small increase in the likelihood you're going to die is really important. So I didn't necessarily understand why he was saying small effects are inherently wrong or bad. Like why would it be a bad thing that we run a study that can detect small effects? And then the other thing is that's that weird is like, well, yeah, that's why we have effect size measures. So then you can so- see how small of an effect is it?
2: Okay, so I I, want to, like, defend this view that, like, maybe we should care less about super tiny, small effect sizes, because, so, you're right, like, if if we could find something that, like, reduces the overall chance of human death by 1%, like, Mm. that would be, that would be a big deal, but I think a charitable way of reading his argument would be, if we assume there's, like, some distribution of effect sizes out there, and some of them are going to be quite small, and some of them are going to be, like, medium or large, then, what you would want to do is you'd want to find those like big effects. Cause like, you'd want to find like what reduces death in humans by 10% uh, rather than focusing on like, what's going to reduce death by like 1% uh, because you know, go for the big effect in, in that case. I at least I think that that's a a charitable way to read his argument. He's not, he's not saying I think that he's saying, like, if you have finite amounts of time and resources, Mm -hmm. you should prioritize the things that are really going to matter rather than the things that are are really trivial. And this is a I don't know. This is a place where I am sympathetic, at least to the spirit of the argument for psychology, Mm -hmm. because I think that oftentimes we do have a science of like kind of silly and trivial findings. Like how do people think about trolleys running over people? because we're never going to face trolleys uh, in in real life. Um, And even in like the era of like COVID-19 where people are like, aha, now we finally found a case where people have to like reason about like these types of moral dilemmas and who gets care. No, we don't. What we find in this case is like doctors don't know how to handle this because it doesn't reflect anything about our normal psychology. Mm -hmm. So like neither trolleys nor ventilators tell us anything about average everyday psychology. Yeah, yeah. Rant over. There we go. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I had to dunk on trolley problems at least once a month. Otherwise, there we go. my moral psychology license.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think that's a good steel man of his argument. And it's in line with some of the other points that he makes, uh, particularly with like personality psychology, which stung a little bit for me. Um, but you know, he made the yeah, argument he's that... brutal
2: about personality psychology. I know
1: come on, man. It's SPSP. <laughs> like We've already merged. Um, but anyway, he makes this point, like, you know, personality started out in this like Freudian territory where we're talking about like these big things. And it was really interesting because like this one thing can explain everything. And that's kind of what you're saying with, you know, if we've got this distribution of effects, we might as well try and find the big things. And now personality psychology has as he puts it, kind of like over and gone to this boring territory mm-hmm. where now no one else is, is really interested in it. Um, so I think that's kind of what he's getting at in some ways with this idea that if all we look at are these small effects, they're not going to pan out and they're not going to cross over into philosophy or mm-hmm. anthropology or just like the general public's interest in what we're doing.
0: Yeah, I, yeah. So I have I have lot I had lots of thoughts on that. But one of them I thought that was funny was that he followed up this idea of um, you know looking at small effects is not useful and we'll be detecting a lot of them. He followed that up with talking about how effect sizes in lab studies don't relate to effect sizes in the real world. So if that's the case why would we infer anything about the small effects or the large effects that we're finding in the lab? Because he is, himself is saying, even if you find a large effect in the lab, that might, that tells you nothing about the effect size in the real world. So yeah. then why have this bias towards large effects if that tells you nothing about the real world? So that was one of the issues that I had. The other was kind of relating to personality, uh, Chris, like you were talking about. He had this like awesome little thing where basically he was saying like, you know, the big five is um, what did he say? It's like, you know, solidly based on data, but you know, it's not nearly as interesting as Freudian psychoanal- psychoanalytic theory. And I didn't really know where he was going with it's like, all, we got the big five is boring, but true. And Freudian psychoanalytic theory, which is, you know, exciting, but not true. So then should we, should we then go for psychoanalytic theory? I, I didn't know where, where to take that. Like, we go with boring, but true. Like, that's what we do. <laughs> you should do.
2: So this is one of the biggest problems that I had with the, the paper, that this sort of emphasis over and over again, like we should be doing work that's interesting. It might not be true, but yeah. it'll be interesting. Yeah. And, and I think that this is not just wrong, but I think that this is a really dangerous way of thinking and for a couple of reasons. like One, okay. So if you say, let's explore really small and find a bunch of things that like may or may not be true, but like what we want to do is like we want to discover lots of stuff. might not be true, but we want to discover lots of stuff. Well, if you discover something, but it turns out not to be true, then you haven't actually discovered anything, number one. On top of that, if you're discovering all sorts of things, but then you're saying, like, confirm really big. And so you discover some set of phenomena, And then you have to confirm those. And if we assume just half of them aren't true, then the number of resources that you're going to expend trying to confirm these things will be massive. And that is a much larger uh, problem for early career researchers, for graduate students, for people who are like now trying to like confirm your bad idea Mm -hmm. in that case. Um, And then the last thing is, like, I'm just philosophically opposed to this idea of, like, we should be doing interesting research regardless of its truth value. Like, I don't deny that Malcolm Gladwell can write a good book, but, like, but his books are bullshit. Uh, and so what you, like, granted, like, they'll sell a million copies, but no one should read them because they're simply not true. Um, uh, <laughs> And so, like I don't want to have at the end of the day a science that's like really Freudianly interesting but is just absolutely full of shit uh i like no that 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 makes you a laughing like that confirms the worst expectations that people have of psychology i I get so fired up on this point because I, I think that it's it's one of the most destructive points that he brings up in the paper
0: yeah, I agree that i mean a lot of times the boring stuff is the true stuff. And in a weird way, it's boring because it is true because we're used to it. We see it all the time and so on. And in social psychology specifically, at least, you know, prior to a lot of the, um, the kind of changes that have been making even now. So there's a huge emphasis on things that are counterintuitive and showing something that's, you know, straightforward is just not valued, but, That is so much more likely to be true. The stuff that is counterintuitive is oftentimes counterintuitive for a reason. It's wrong. (laughs) That's the reason. That was
2: the psych science model for a decade. Like, Mm -hmm. we want to publish, like, counterintuitive findings. Well, it turns out that most of psych science research for that decade, publishing counterintuitive findings, like, those things don't replicate. And think of all the resources that we wasted trying to confirm or, like, or just test those those types of, of effects. And really boring findings can still be really important. We talked about masks earlier, like, yeah, social norms influence behavior, it turns out. You see everybody else wearing a mask, you're going to feel like you should be too. That's a really important effect that is also a really boring effect.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I want to make sure I'm remembering this correctly. Um, I think you said something, and I don't want to misquote, I think you said something about us being a relatively new or like emerging field yep. compared to others. And I thought that was an interesting point to make um, because he was kind of, if I remember correctly saying it in line of maybe we should take small steps and maybe we should be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, but he's not necessarily following with that logic in terms of the research that we do because the, the argument, as it's framed in this paper, is we should do the big, really interesting, really groundbreaking stuff. And just to throw out an example, physics didn't start with quantum physics. Like, it took a lot to get there. And if we're in an early stage, like, maybe we should be looking at these, like, small incremental things. And that's what's going to eventually get us to those big interesting things. Now, are we going to be around for that? Maybe not, right? It might take another hundred years or it might be in a hundred years that psychology is no longer a thing, but I think it, from a scientific point of view, it makes sense that, you know, we should take these small steps and not go for these crazy big findings all of the time.
2: Yeah. I think that's a really good point. I mean, laws of physics didn't just like pop up in the first years that they were doing physics. It took right. a really long time to get there. And we, we don't yet have like the first law of psychology um so i, I think well, that argument i mean like the humans are selfish <laughs> might be like a law of psychology but
1: eh, people uh, say yerkes dotson and um oh what's the other one anyway yerkes dotson is usually quoted as a law but that that's neither here nor there either uh, way I, your 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 point is your point still stands
2: yeah but but I, but I agree with with your general view like if we're such a young science then what we would expect to do is a lot of this like foundational work that might not be that flashy, but needs to sort of lay out like, what are the basic contours of things that like we know? I I agree with him saying like, we are a young science. And so like, we might make lots of mistakes. That's true. But that's not, that's not carte blanche to just like run out and do sloppy work. I, I think like that's the error. That, that he makes in, in the argument that he says, like, we're young science. Like, we should, like, just go out and, like, run fast and break stuff. Like, we should go for, like, the Facebook model. Um, but instead, like, yeah, we're young science. So, like, let's lay down what what we think are the, like, the really clear, robust findings and then, like, build a science off of that.
3: I'm trying to reconcile this conversation with the conversation about whether our research is important, and I guess I, I feel like the danger of the freedom in academia to pursue what you find interesting is the, I mean, the flexibility can be dangerous, right? And so some people might be seeking truth, and some people might be seeking flashy, exciting kinds of findings, and if we have no constraints on our flexibility, then we're, we have the freedom to go in either direction.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting kind of tie in. Yeah, Because if, if your interest is finding instances where people do weird things, you know, counterintuitive things, then that's where you're going to be pushing towards and whatnot and presumably there might be things that you might do that would kind of lead you in that direction
3: and i think that is inherently interesting right mm-hmm. oh, yeah. it's interesting to think mm-hmm. that like oh well it would be rational for you to do this and then you did that now i'm gonna design a study to show that everyone else did that too mm-hmm. um yeah
2: yeah i mean so and i think that ties in so he raises sort of like four problems with large sample sizes and and we talked about the first that it's going to focus us on these these trivial small effects um and twilight i think your point sort of ties in with this uh another one that it's going to limit how much work we can do at at a time Uh, but he makes like two others and that it's going to reduce behavioral experiments and that it's going to disadvantage uh, in particular, like students, early career researchers, and smaller colleges, and I think, I think he's got a good argument, or uh, in in some of these cases. Um, and so he's written a couple of things about like psychology becoming a, a, the study of like reaction times and button mm-hmm. presses, and and that's that's something that I, I do think is a reasonable critique of our science about the sort of artificialness mm-hmm. of our science and. That if, if what we're saying is we expect you to produce the same number of publications um, and we expect you to produce really large sample sizes, then what that necessarily means is you need to do like the simplest, cheapest version that's the most stripped down study you can possibly do, um, which is going to be probably something super artificial that you can like pop on mTurk and then get 800 people uh, in a day on. And, and I, I think that his indictment of that is, is like right. I think that we should think more about, can we show an experiment conceptually in the lab? And then can we replicate that with like a behavioral experiment? Can we actually see that our sort of lab demonstration maps onto something related mm-hmm. in real behavior? Because I think we are often missing that in our, in our studies.
0: So, yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. But I think he is trying to make the argument that because there's this push towards doing good science, that is what leads people to do studies on MTurk and easy to run samples. And so he's talking about, and we've talked about this, how there's, you know, been a change over time where there's fewer and fewer behavioral studies, um, you know, where people are actually looking at real behavior. Um, And there's more and more online studies, but I don't think that that is actually a result of a lot of the changes that we've been implementing to make science better. I would say that a lot of these changes have been happening a while ago. It's because of technology, right? I mean, why were there no online studies 40 years ago? This is shocking, right? No, I mean, obviously the technology did not exist. Now as the technology exists that we have these samples, that just happened to coincide with the time that we're doing these this um, kind of you know changing this uh, revolution. As many people have talked about it in terms of the the reform, um, it's just coinciding with that. So I don't know that one is actually causing the other to happen. So I I wouldn't say that you know it's because of that, which is the argument that he's trying to make. And then the other thing I would say is that there are ways to do both, right? To have both large samples and good studies. Yes. Um, you, you know, so there's more collaborations. And I think there should be, we talked about collaborations before. I think there should be a lot more collaborations where, you know, what if each lab runs 100 participants and then you have four labs working together, now you have 400 participants and you have a good sample size, even though you're getting hard to collect data. And so, so I think that there are ways to both do the behavioral studies, do the hard to get, you know, collect samples, do the whatever, but also have decent sample sizes. Again, within reason, uh, you know, as many people have mentioned, um, obviously there's going to have to be some kind of give and take. If your, you know, I don't know, target population is, you know, only a thousand people in the country. Well, okay, obviously you're not going to be getting a sample of 2000 people. But for the most part, I think there are ways of doing both. So I feel like he's really trying to say, well, you can either do big samples or you can do good behavioral research. Take your pick. And I don't know that that's a fair criticism. I don't think it has to be a trade-off like that.
2: Yeah, I, I, I take your point, especially, so if, if you bring in collaborations, then I, I think, and if you're okay with a slower science then I think you're absolutely right. Right. I think sort of baked into his argument is um, an idea of like you as an independent researcher and sort of assuming a certain pace of work. And if you do assume those two things, and I I think like his argument only holds if you assume that you are an independent researcher not collaborating with many other labs Mm -hmm. and that you need to be publishing at a particular rate and not slowing down. If you assume those two things, then I think there is actually a trade-off between being able to do behavioral work and doing large sample work. But um, but as you say, like well, then the the way to solve that yeah. is yeah. slow down, which might benefit the field more broadly, mm-hmm. and to like collaborate uh, with with other labs, which also probably benefits the the field more broadly. But given like those two things aren't even on his radar, I think his argument, his argument was like a uh, a good faith read of his argument assuming those things. like I think his argument holds.
0: Yeah, but I mean, like you said, his argument holds if we acknowledge that people are going to do nothing else. Yeah. But I think that's a weird argument to make because we are going to do other things. And I think we these are problems we can solve. And then, and and this kind of gets back to also what we had talked about earlier, that then the idea there is that you're you're then prioritizing, you know, something else over um, kind of, I don't know, I'm going to say like truth, but really that's what we should be going for anyway. So if we, even if that did require us to slow down, but then we'd have less crap out there in terms of the research that's being done. So of course that should be better anyway
2: yeah i mean the the one thing where he's like oh you know slowing down would be terrible mm-hmm. and like prioritizing rigorous but boring research would be terrible i'm like well i'm okay with like both of those things so i i think there's just like i think one thing to recognize is that we might have a different philosophical orientation than baumeister does in this paper that yeah. we are simply more okay with work that is more rigorous and less flashy than than mm-hmm. baumeister does in this case and I don't want to just say like, oh, it's a philosophical difference, and like we can agree to disagree. Um, but I think it's, it's important to recognize that, that difference, but then also to say like one of those philosophies might be more damaging than the other.
0: Yeah, I agree. I loved one, one of his comments, or one of his quotes here. He said, when I ran my own experiments as a graduate student and young professor, I struggled to stay motivated to deliver the same instructions and manipulations through four cells of n equals 10 each. So, so he was struggling to collect data from 40 people. Um, I do not know how I um, would have managed to reach N equals 50 patients, diligent researchers will gain relative to others. I mean, just like, yeah, I, I you know, I, I, that's tough. I'm sorry that we got to stay patient through, you know, a couple hundred people. I, it's just, that's a bummer. I, I, thought,
2: I also thought it was weird. Like our, our jobs actually rewards delaying of gratification like we start a project and we don't finish a project for usually like a year um so the idea like oh this is not a job that rewards patience yeah. i su- but like it'll take me six months to like have this thing published and a year to have it in the literature Like, we kind of like patience is our jam like that that's like what we specialize in yeah but um yeah i mean I, I do think, uh, and the other thing, I, I think that the, the thing that struck home to me most in his argument is that large samples could have a negative effect mm-hmm. on early career researchers and on researchers at small universities. So I was having a conversation with a, a collaborator of mine. We've been running a series of studies that I'm really excited about. I, I'm super, super excited about these studies. But right now, because I don't know if we're going to be back in the fall, I don't know if we're going to have a subject pool in the fall. And I have like this pool of money. But then after this pool of money, like I have no more funding to do research and research. And if we don't have a subject pool, like my research will grind to a halt. Mm-hmm. And so in this, I'm like, hey, I, I'm really nervous about basically um, running like two vignettes to make sure like things generalize and having to double our sample because that's gonna cost me this huge amount of money, eat up a huge block of this, this money that I have left. And I think that he's really right here that these, this emphasis on larger sample sizes will damage people more if they don't have access to grant funding, essentially, especially in the world where we are doing more things online. And so the name of the game is like, can you pay your subjects? Uh, and so there, I think he's got the argument really, really right.
0: Yes, <laughs> I'm still hesitant in that, in the sense that, I mean, I agree that, and, and that's, that's where I started with this. Like I wanted to really like this paper because I wanted it to go, come out and just show how wonderfully disadvantaged we are being at a, a smaller place and how much harder our life is than everybody else's and whatnot. But I, I just, I feel like, in the end of the day, it's like, yes, that is true. And yes, I agree. We need to not just run studies online and we need to do things that are harder, but at the same time, I don't think that that should be weighed more heavily than figuring out what's right. And I think that we've got, no, not that you were saying that, but, but I just, I feel like that is just like, it's a huge, um, I don't know, i don't know it's just it's one of those things where it's like yes these things are hard but doing good research is hard and i think that in the past his generation and people around there got re- re- rewarded for doing crap research okay so boomer. it's not like what was that okay boomer researcher <laughs> i know but it's not like well i mean it, that's the thing is like it's just the, the, it was a lot easier to do it you just run a bunch of studies and then you toss some stuff up there and I mean, it was a different world, but I don't think that that means that what we're doing is wrong. That means that what has been going on was wrong, and we need to change that.
2: Yeah, oh no, I I absolutely agree. My my argument is that I think he's right about the trade-off, that this emphasis on larger sample sizes won't hit everybody equally, and it will hit people with fewer resources to do research harder. Now, like, that's maybe a, a, a trade-off that we're willing to make, because in the end, like, we want to pursue truth, not, you know, just fanciful things that can be written up in a Malcolm Gladwell book. Uh, but but that I think he's right to point out that this isn't costless, that this could exacerbate the, the existing differences between people who are doing research at comprehensive universities versus people who have more access to both internal and external funding at R one. I, I think like that that is something to uh, to to highlight here.
3: And I agree that <laughs> I agree that research is hard, and that collecting larger samples is harder than collecting smaller samples, and that of course money matters, right? Like I agree with all those things, but I feel like there's something to be said for the fact that at comprehensive well it depends on the university i would imagine i haven't done like a thorough review of comprehensive <laughs> universities but at least at an institution like ours you you can get tenure by doing boring research and you can get here by publishing fewer papers, right? Like our standard for quantity is not high. Mm-hmm. And so to some extent, I feel like this might be more disadvantageous for R1 people who have to mm. publish more and and publish like a coherent, cohesive program of research, right? And so I feel like the pressure for them might be stronger than the pressure for people at institutions like ours
0: how dare you suggest that their life is going to be harder than ours no ours is as difficult as it gets and
2: (laughs) way to betray your (laughs) in-group
1: but yeah i mean i think that's exactly why like people are talking about changing the standards for tenure and you know, reworking those things because it would level the playing field. I don't know if it'd be the, the tide that raises all boats, but it would certainly counter some of this stuff.
0: Yeah, I would, no, I definitely agree that we need to evaluate things more so, you know, more deeply than just, you know, there are eight lines on your CV. So therefore you pass the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We should definitely go farther than that.
1: Yeah. And I know we're getting close on time, but one thought I had in this the debate of are there costs to upping sample size and do those hit people like us harder? Um, I mean, this isn't a perfect solution, but there's already things like psych like science accelerator, mm-hmm. many labs, many babies, like people are finding ways and those are open to anyone, mm-hmm. um, regardless of the size of your institution. And it's a really good way to, to get a lot of data that would be hard to get otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you're, you're collaborating with other people, so it might take a little bit of extra work, but maybe they help you.
2: Are willing to collaborate
0: that you'd like to collaborate.
1: Yeah. 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 So there might be a selection bias there, but still it's, it's available.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And that's kind of like what we were talking about, that there are ways of solving these problems. Again, even though I, I do agree that there are trade offs, it is hard, but that's what good research is. All right, so it looks like we're winding down here. So um, unless there's any final uh, kind of jabs at the paper. Um, All right, well, uh, thank you for listening and we will talk with you next time. Thank you for listening to Marginally Significant. We'd love to hear if you have comments, questions, or any feedback about today's episode. You can message us on Twitter at MarginallySig. Our email address is MarginallySig at gmail.com. And there's a contact form on our website, which is MarginallySig.com. However you contact us, we'll be sure to reply. Uh, If you're interested in supporting the show, we'd also love getting reviews on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. And finally, uh, you can post about the show on Twitter, Facebook, or any other social media platform that you use. However you support the show, we really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.